0: But let's look at Matthew chapter 5, uh, beginning in verse 27 together, down through verse 37. This is Jesus speaking uh, in his Sermon on the Mount, his longest teaching that he gives uh, to anyone. There would have been a mixed crowd here, people that followed him, his disciples, as well as others who had gathered around. Jesus says, that you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is the reading of God's Word. Um, in his 2000, a book that came out in the year 2000, Malcolm Gladwell uh, wrote about this phenomenon of, studied and wrote about this phenomenon of what, what leads to tipping points in our culture, with the tipping point being something where it has a gradual buildup and then something pushes a social movement or an idea or a technology or some form of art, it pushes it over to the edge and it gains widespread social approval and distribution. And in his book, which I've been reading, he talks about, you know, he kind of asks this question that, that for things that truly succeed and become what he calls social epidemics, when things like that happen, is it... Is it really just happenstance and random for something, some things that do tip and become epidemics and there's things that never do? And what he studies and suggests is that there are clear factors along the way that lead to something's tipping, to it actually going over the edge and running out like wild into culture. Look, as I meet with you, as I talk with you, as I listen to your stories, as, as I pray with you, um, I've been here for several years now, And I feel like I can say with a relative degree of certainty that these issues that we're talking about tonight have tipped for you. They have reached that point of bubbling over in your life to where you just kind of can't get away from it. For some of you, they, they literally dominate your mindset. For others of you, you're plagued by your past in these areas. And for some of you, you're at at that place where you just don't know what to do because it's absolutely controlling you in every facet of your life. When you think about the issues of of adultery and lust and and lying and deceit, and I'm not going to go as deep, actually I'm not going to say much about divorce tonight at all because you have to be a little picky and choosy and we just don't have much time, but but with these other two things, they are an ever-present reality for you. And so we're going to look at these things tonight. And what I want to look at is uh, just kind of work systematically down through this. What is Jesus' warning about lust and adultery? What is he saying about this? Why is he saying it? Why do we give in to this? And then he goes on to talk about uh, lying and deception and oaths and all this stuff. So why is he having to give this extra commandment on this? What's going on there? And why are we so susceptible to failure in this area? And then finally, we're going to talk about how Jesus brings us hope. He brings hope for those of us who have tipped in these areas, who are right in the middle of them or have been in them or will be in them. So first, let's just look at this first thing, Jesus' warning against lust and adultery. In verses 27 through 30, um, Jesus, as He did last week and as He'll do in the next couple weeks, He takes this Old Testament teaching on adultery, which is one of the Ten Commandments, kind of one of the Old Testament's big moral teachings, and he brings that commandment to the light and says, yeah, that, that's valid. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. Last week we talked about how sometimes when Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, he does away with it. So the sacrifices are done away with, the ceremonial laws and the food laws are done away with for Christians today. But there are also ways that Jesus fulfills the law of the Old Testament by, by filling it full of meaning. And this would be one of those examples. He is filling full of meaning what it actually means to commit adultery. He is saying that that adultery is more than just the act of physical intercourse between two married people. He is actually exploding this category into ways that quite honestly make us really uncomfortable. Because he says that adultery of the heart begins the moment that you begin to lust after someone. Now, for those of us who aren't married, right, we're not committing adultery, but it is extramarital sex. It is extramarital marital fornication, and that is all in the same category. In Jesus' day, most of His hearers, 20 years old or up, would have been married, and that's just not where we are culturally. But He's speaking right to us and saying, look, lust is a big deal. Lust is a big deal. So what is Jesus saying actually is the big deal? What is lustful intent that he kind of harps on here? Okay, what he's not saying is that if you look up and you see someone walking across campus or whatever who's attractive, you look at a guy or a girl and you say, wow, he's really handsome, or man, she's really beautiful. And for you to acknowledge that, that somebody that God has made is is a beautiful person or is attractive to you, that is not sinful in and of itself. Right, There is beauty that we ought to call beautiful. There is good art. There is good uh, landscape. There are things that we can rightly say beautiful, and people are part of that. And that's okay. But where Jesus starts, the, the words that he's using here, this lustful intent, are that when we take those looks and we decide to keep looking in that way that's not just an appreciation of this person as beautiful, but is that looking of it's doing something to you and in you your heart begins to say man I I want I want to go down that path for a little while and it may not be like fully mentally undressing I, I don't know what that looks like for you I know guys and girls certainly are different guys tend to be more visual girls tend to live more in uh, the emotional side of that that's not I'm speaking in broad terms. I'm not saying if you're not that way, you're weird. But like, you know, this means different things for you. But Jesus is saying it's that that time of entertaining the fantasies. Man, I wonder what could be. I wonder if this could happen. And He's giving us caution here. And so the flip side of that real quick is that there are ways to dress appropriately. Now this... I've never sounded more like a youth group leader than I was talking about what you wear. But but we have to because, look, guys and girls, you know that you can do things or wear things that isn't just to dress nicely or decently, but you're intentionally dressing to seduce someone so that they can see your body in a certain way so that you will draw them into those lustful thoughts and fantasies. Guys, that sounds weird, but you might take your shirt off. Some of you guys are like, no, I'm not doing that. I get it. That's fine. Um, but, but it's not just for girls, okay? I've been hammered on that. in the past. Girls are like, guys, do it too. You're right. We do it. So we don't get off the hook on that. Okay, so why is Jesus saying this? Why does he feel the need to come and take this Old Testament command and bring more light to it? Well, there's, there's a couple of reasons. Um, first is that since sexuality is part of human nature... Since sexuality is part of human nature, sexual desire is proper and natural and good. Look, the Bible is more pro-sex than you are. It is. It sees sex as something absolutely wonderful and beautiful. God loves sex more than you do. Some of you are thinking that's not possible. It's absolutely possible. He wove it through the fabric of the Bible, this imagery of husband-wife thing coming together. He's like, oh, that's really about Jesus and the church. And you're like, what? What does that mean? There's, there's kind of a mystery in that. We don't all know, know what all that means. But look, God's original intention for sex was something that was to be beautiful and cherished and treasured and enjoyed. Yet like all good things, food, drink, sleep, money, to be enjoyed rightly, it has to be enjoyed the right way, in the right place, in the right time. Look, sleep is a great thing. I'm not getting any of it right now. because have an 8 week old. But sleep is a great thing. But there are times when to sleep would not be the appropriate thing. For you to sleep right through your classes, right in front of your professor, is not the best thing to do. It's a little disrespectful. You're probably missing out on something important. Um, money is not necessarily a bad thing, but when money becomes the sole thing that you live for, it becomes a bad thing. The same thing with sex. It's not wrong in of itself. But Jesus is saying He wants us to enjoy the gifts He gives us, sexuality, our imagination. And He wants us to enjoy these things in the right way, in the right place, or at the right time. Your sexuality, you hear this, your sexuality was given to you by God. It was, it was in the fabric of who you are. And you were made to serve and to love someone with that in the right context. And in the right way. It's meant to be a way for you to tell someone that everything I am is yours. My bank account is yours. My debt is yours. My awesome car or my crappy car is yours. Sorry about that. Um, Everything I have belongs to you. It's called marriage. It's a covenant. And there's a promise that goes along with that and says... And I am never going to leave you. And it's within that context and that covenant that God says that sex is to be enjoyed because it's saying something so much more than just this bodily exercise. Sex is so much more than an orgasm. And I don't mean that to be shocking. I'm just saying we have to understand that is the nature of it. There's this guy named Louis Smeads who uh, wrote this book called Sex for Christians. I haven't read it, but I saw this quote. And he says that when two bodies are united, two persons are united. Nobody can go to bed with somebody and leave his soul parked outside. The soul is in the act. For some of you, you're going to have to trust me on that. Because maybe you haven't experienced that. But for others of you internally you're nodding you're saying, yeah, that's right. Because when I left afterward, or when I got up the next morning and walked away, I know that I left a piece of me in there. And Jesus is coming and saying, look, that is true, but even our fantasy life, even our lustful thoughts and what goes on in our mind that may never come out here into the world even that can be destructive and can, can work to our undoing and the undoing of relationships around us. Um, I need to talk honestly for just a sec about um, pornography, uh, masturbation, fantasies, that kind of thing. And this may be the weirdest thing you ever hear a pastor say. I, I hope not. Everyone in the world's talking about it. Christians ought to be able to talk about these things. Um, we tend to think that porn and masturbation and fantasy is just a very private thing. It it, it seems very private. The act seems very private. And we think, well, how could this ever be affecting anyone except for me? After all, it's just me doing it. Look, that view of what it is is amazingly naive. And I don't say that to chide you or to make you feel dumb or uneducated. I just want to say that that is amazingly naive to think that this doesn't affect anyone around us. Because, look, people are more than the sum total of your body parts. I don't have to tell you ladies in here that because you feel it every single day. When you walk around and you can feel the glare from guys, you know what that's like. We are not objects just to be gawked at. And used, whether through a video screen or whether through film or whether through literature or whether through in person, people are more, have more dignity and worth than that. And so when we engage in things like porn and, and fantasy and masturbation, we are using people and we are degrading them in the process, whether or not we ever meet them. And we are encouraging them to degrade themselves as they're involved in the industry and in doing these things. It inflames Lust. But there's more than that. It's unfair to spouses, present or future. It is absolutely unkind and unfair to them because there is no one who can compete with the polished look of these models that come across the screen. Who these photographers and these producers get to eliminate all their defects and highlight all their beauties. And I'm telling you that when you get into marriage and you start to have real sex as it was meant to be given, and you start comparing this person on the other side of the bed with these images and things that you've seen for the last 10 years, you'll realize really quickly that it is not innocent. I get really passionate about this because I have counseled five of my really close guy friends about this very thing who have struggled mightily in their marriage with being being able to have sex, with being able to enjoy their wife. Because of what they did for decades beforehand. It's, it's a big deal. But there's even more than that. Studies after study are rolling in, and the research is it's absolutely crystal clear that pornography and these things, they're real addictions, y'all. It's the, the The brain pathways, the things that are being formed when we engage in this, are like heroin. What heroin and opiates do to our body. It's real stuff. And it's serious, and we ought to take it serious. Okay, so we back off for just a second. When we consider what God is offering us in sex and sexuality, it's something to be enjoyed, and something to be entered into, Something to serve, a way to serve one another, it's really not that hard to see why Scripture puts such strong warnings on these things. Look, this is not God saying, I don't want you to have fun with a boyfriend or girlfriend. It's Him saying, I want you to enjoy this as you were created to enjoy it. In the right way, the right time, in the right place. Anything less than that, whether it's actually physically doing or if it's just in our imagination. Is working to our own destruction and to the destruction of others. It was meant to bring life and dignity, but instead, because of its use in the way that we use it and engage in it out of context, instead it tears us down and brings massive insecurity. And we know that. We know that's true. So why do we do it? If it's obviously so bad or wrong, or why do we do it? some of you, quite honestly, you can't imagine not doing it. You've been engaged in it so long. You've just kind of given in for so long that to think about stopping just seems impossible. It seems too hard to stop those thoughts or those 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 fantasies once they begin. The Avett brothers have a song that's called Ill With Want. The chorus said, something has me. Something has me. I'm acting like someone I don't want to be. And for some of you, that's a very real and present thought. You feel like you just can't stop. I know what that's like. I was there for 13 years of my life. I know with that impulse of thought that says, you can't get out of this. Look at how many times in the past you've failed. And so you just do it again. If you want to talk about that, I'm willing to talk about that with you. Because I've seen a lot of beauty and deliverance from that. The Lord has been gracious. And I will not stand over you in judgment. I know it's a very real thing. We can't imagine what it's like not doing it. Why else do we do it? We do it because it gives us a jolt or a feeling of happiness amidst the rest of life, which is lonely or which is stressful or which is numb. It gives us this sense that I'm alive, right? Right? And so we give in to that. We become addicted to that even. We also do it because it feels more real than Jesus feels. we have to acknowledge that, that. That to feel some of those things or to engage in that, quite honestly, is just more palatable than this whole religion thing, than this whole Jesus thing. And so for someone to say, well, just believe in Jesus, you're like, okay, but Jesus doesn't make me feel that way. I get that. I understand that. And it leads us to think that Jesus is irrelevant. But look, what if we actually take Jesus at His word for who He's claiming to be? He actually is claiming to be the one who created you. And He's saying, you're going to have to trust Me on this. It's not going to make tons of sense. But I know how you were created to function. I know how you were made to most fully be you, to most fully be human. And to go against that is to do it to your own destruction. Jesus is the one who is bringing forth this idea and this kingdom and this way of living where you are freed from the things that will destroy you and others. And he's saying, this is one of those things. Will you trust me in it? So then he moves on then. He talks about divorce. And again, I mentioned we're not going to go there tonight. You can talk about it otherwise if you want to. But he goes on. He talks about lying and deception. I'm just going to reread real quick 33 through 37. So look down and we'll just look at it. It says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not, not swell, swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven or earth, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is this footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Down in verse 37, let what, you simply, let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this is from uh, comes from evil. Why, what in the world is happening here? This really doesn't make sense to us. Um, Jesus, again, is deepening the meaning of this. Now, the, the Old Testament command or the thing was verse 33, which said, um, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. He's basically, there's this principle and command in the Old Testament that, that do what you say. If you make an oath, do it. If you can tell someone you're going to do something, do it. But what had happened down through the ages, and by Jesus' time, the teachers and the Pharisees and the scribes of all this, they had concocted this system that feed, defeated the very purpose of oaths. And what they did is they put in place this, this way that oaths, whether depending on what you swore by, they might or might not be binding. And so it gets kind of ridiculous. But, for instance, if someone was to swear by Jerusalem, like, I swear by Jerusalem that... I'll go take care of your cows, whatever. Um, Then you could walk away from that and admit nothing. But if you swore toward Jerusalem, I swear toward Jerusalem that I'm going to go take care of your cows. Like if you didn't do that, it was a big deal. So that's what Jesus is getting at when he's like, if you swear by heaven or by Jerusalem or by the earth, he's sitting there saying, this whole system of weird things has been concocted. Why don't you just let your yes be yes and your no be no? Why can't you just do that? So he's putting forward this idea that those who follow him have to tell the truth. I do want to say I think it's okay to take oaths in certain situations, like for military service before judges and and those kind of things when you don't know someone. There are permissions for this. But on the whole, Jesus is saying, live in a way that your words can be trustworthy and honest. Okay, now why is Jesus saying this? This gets to be really, really important because I think you guys struggle with this more than you think you do. He again is calling us back to live as we were created to live because God made us in His image. God is a God of truth and honesty. And so it's right and it's good and it's beautiful when we can take God at His word because He says, if I do this, if I say this, I'm going to do it. I'm not lying to you. If you confess your sins, I will forgive your sins. We can take that to the bank. He means it. And so when he's encouraging his followers here to let your yes be yes, your no be no, he's saying that when you do that, you're showing the world something of his beauty. And when you go against that, you are lying about who God is. And you're lying to other people and it's destructive to them. Look, we know people who just are pathological liars. I mean, have y'all ever met someone who truly, they just think they're telling, they tell so many lies, they've absolutely convinced themselves they're telling the truth. Had a friend in high school named Devin. Unbelievable. I guess I could tell stories forever. Crazy stuff. And every like everyone around him just basically were like, oh, gee, he's an idiot. That's mean. He was a liar. Hard to believe him. But I actually think that... Um, this gets a little more close to home for me and maybe for you. In college, um, I told a friend of mine one night that I would hang out with him one Friday night. He wasn't a particularly social guy. And so for him to have, like, make plans for a Friday night, it was a big deal. It was a real big deal. And so we had agreed that we were going to go eat or go to a movie or something. I don't remember exactly what it was. Later on that week, I got another offer to do something which was going to be a lot more fun with some friends that I had rather, would rather have hang out, hung out with.
1: And I said yes to them, and I went back to him and said,
0: hey, man, I've decided I'm going to go home this weekend. That Friday night, as you're all imagining right now, I walked out of the dorm with those friends. I saw him sitting right there. And it's one of those piercing moments where you just feel like less than a human. You just feel like worse than dirt. And Jesus is saying, yeah. And you weren't created to live that way. You weren't created to do that to experience that, to do that to someone else and let them be on the receiving end of that. So why do we do this? Well, we do it because we lie and we create deceit all around us because we love to self-protect. We love to self-protect. What do I mean by that? I mean that we lie and we deceive ourselves and others so that we can keep them from actually getting to know us. Because there is that thought in our minds that if they get to know the real me, they will surely leave and never come back. If they get to know who I truly am in here, they won't want to be my friend or they won't want to be my boyfriend or girlfriend. And so we lie. We tell these little lies which seem innocent at first. But we do it over and over and over again. And we create this whole web of lies around us to where, quite honestly, we forget kind of who we are in the midst of that. We forget who we've told what. And we end up in this, it's a web, it's a sticky web of I forgot what I've told these people and not told them. And and our life becomes about managing these relationships all around us. And it is the opposite of the freedom that Jesus came came to bring us. He came to move us to a place where we can be honest with people. For much of high school, for a lot of college, I, I played golf a lot. Um, I played, also played a lot of golf for money, and I'm not proud of that. I say it for this illustration. Y'all, I cheated a lot. And I'm not proud of that either. I cheated a lot. I cheated a lot of people out of a lot of money. I wanted them to think that I was better than I was. And I wanted to take their money. <laughs> I got to college... And for my whole first year of college, and then for even several years after college, some of you have heard this story before. I told people, when they asked me what I did in high school, I told them I played golf. I'm like, oh, did you ever think about playing in college? like, yeah, actually I came and I talked to the golf coach at OU about walking on. We decided it wasn't going to work out. I told so many people that, y'all, that I actually think I began to believe that. I never, not one time, talked to the OU golf coach. Why would I do something like that? I didn't want people to think that I was average. I didn't want them to see the real me, which wasn't that impressive. I was trying to protect them from that place. Even today, when, I'm, when I talk to people about how things in RUF are going, whether people are supporting this ministry financially or not, y'all, you know, I'm so tempted and I give in so often. and I hate this. To, to saying things are so much more awesome than they are. I will lie. I will do things that isn't, um, it's not true. I'll tell people things just because I want them to think that that I'm awesome or that things aren't just mediocre or whatever. I do that even today and I hate it. So we do it to self-protect. Look, we also do it to self-promote. We also do it to self-promote that we want people to think that we're greater than we are. We want to, uh, we've decided that others will like this other version of me that isn't the real me. And so we begin to tell them things about us that aren't true with our friends. We wear, we say, we do certain things because we want to be accepted. With our university culture here at TU, with, with jobs and with things down the line, you are going to be tempted, if you haven't already given in, to create this persona of who you want them to, who you want them to think that you are. And you're building this resume of lies. Some of you feel that. You feel like a giant lie when you walk out onto this campus. And you feel trapped like there's no other way out. I talk with you all about this a lot. I know what that's like. I did it my whole college career. I wanted people to think I was a certain way and not another way. I was involved everywhere. I did everything. I was the poster child at OU. I I don't mean that with pride. I say with a lot of shame and guilt from my past. And after college, I had created such a web of lies, which actually is connected both to pornography and sexuality stuff, but also just my lying deception that my friends around me, they didn't. my best friends didn't know who I was. And you know, it all came crashing down. Hard, hard. And I was having to face and I was confronted with who I actually was, the real Brent. And what I found wasn't that exciting. But what I found in the midst of that was a God who came right up next to me. And He met me in that. In that place of sadness. In that place of brokenness. In that place of shame and guilt. And He came right up next to me and I couldn't get this saying out of my head. It was like a gong that just kept coming next to me and said, You are more broken and sinful than you ever feared. And y'all, I felt that. That made sense to me. I was at such a low point. But you are so much more loved and accepted by Jesus than you ever hoped. At the very same moment that we can experience our utter brokenness and our shame about this stuff, God comes into that and says, You can receive healing. You can receive hope right into the middle of that. And I was drawn to passages like John 4 where there's this adulterous woman that Jesus meets at the well. And she had lived just a prolific life in sin. Out loud before the community, everyone knew who she was. She was the town whore. And Jesus says, I've got living water. I can give you something that if you, if you take this, you will never go after that again. He pursued her. I found in the Scripture... A Jesus who went to a man named Zacchaeus whose whole life was built around deceit and lies. He extorted people for money and was a rich man because of this. His whole life was built around lies. And Jesus came and found him and pursued him who was up in a tree and said, Zacchaeus, come down. I am going to your house tonight. I'm coming to be with you. Friends, Jesus does not stand far off from your brokenness, from your sexual whatever, from your lying and deception, and say, hey, once you get that cleaned up, you come to me. And maybe we can talk then. He comes right into the middle of that and says, I love you for who you are. And I love you enough that I'm going to come and redeem you and change you and free you up to be the person that you were created to be. God created us to live in a freedom that is truly freeing. It is one where He is our master because He knows what's best for us. And so when Jesus gives these commandments, He's offering us life. He knows that we will fail and we will never keep them perfectly and we will need Him all the more, and that's part of it. He's offering life here. So three things real quick on what you can do, very practical. Get to know Jesus This sounds cliche, whatever. Find out that He is so much more willing to be acquainted with you than you ever hoped. That He will meet you in the midst of that sin and shame and He will be there with you. Receive His forgiveness and begin to walk on that healing path. Second thing, move toward others in honesty. Some of you, you just need to talk to somebody about these things. Find me, find Bethany, find a Christian friend that you trust, a pastor, somebody and begin to bring these things out into the light, our sin will kill us if it's left in the darkness. Find a counselor. Talk to Jesse tonight until midnight. I'm just kidding. Um, Find someone that you can talk to. Bring it out into the light. Thirdly, put practical helps in place. Maybe that's an Internet blocker for you. Maybe that's for, for some of you looking at a friend and saying, don't leave my side tonight. I don't want to go off with another guy. I don't want to go off with another girl tonight. I want, to go, I want to walk back to my apartment with you. For some of you, it may be asking a friend to ask you why you're applying for that next position. Are you doing that just to continue the web of lies and self-protection and self-promotion? Are you? Think with me for just a minute. Just imagine, and I'm done after I say this. Imagine how freeing it would be not to be driven and controlled by your out-of-control, lustful thoughts. Imagine being free from what people think about you. Imagine walking in a way of life where you can step out onto this campus and be honest about who you are, both your successes and your failures. And be able to be okay with that because you know that the God of the universe is okay with that. And He's okay with you. He likes you and He loves you. And He approves of you already. So you know, it just kind of matters a little bit less what that guy or that girl thinks about me. Friends, when you get to know Jesus, when you find out that He is that person whose longing and acceptance you're looking for, when you find out that when you have it from Him, You won't need it from all these other places. You will be free. And Jesus has come to do that. That's what's offered in the gospel. and It's an invitation tonight for you. Let's pray.